At this time, Brother Phil's going to come and he's going to present our message for today. Uh, just a word of introduction. Uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, we are making some changes to our children's ministries. And for the, kind of as an introduction to that, for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at topics related to that and trying to explain some of what we're attempting to accomplish. And so uh, I hope, especially if this applies to you, if you're parents or grandparents and you're wondering about some of the changes, uh, try to be faithful the next three weeks because uh, we're going to talk very specifically about those things. And I think, hopefully, it will be clear to you. So uh, Brother Phil's going to kick it off this morning. Well, you may be stretched a bit to see how what I'm going to say connects. Hopefully, by the end, we'll connect the dots and you'll see how it all comes together. Uh, by the way, have you noticed that we're coming up on an election? You know, when you, pick up, when you pick up your phone, you never know who's going to be on the other end these days. We've had some dignitaries call us at the highest level in the last month or so. And, you know, as I look at this upcoming election, I wish I could make a suggestion or two to both parties. And I wish they'd listen. And one of the things, not likely, is it? Uh, one of the things that I would suggest to them is to sit down and read through Proverbs just one a day from now till the election. It would only get them through two and a half times roughly. I think we're 80-some days from the election. But it would help them a great deal if they would read those Proverbs and then put into practice uh, the things that they've learned. And they should start in chapter 1. That would be a good place to start. In fact, chapter 1, verse 7. I wish that they would hear this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom. Did you sense that contrast between those who fear the Lord, who have knowledge, and those who do not and, and don't have wisdom? Time and again in Proverbs, wisdom is extolled practical wisdom for everyday life. As somebody said, it's counsel from above for conduct here below. And, and that's a, a good way to see Proverbs. You know, Proverbs is written in short bursts. And so when you read through it, you read it that way. Uh, Proverbs is not a book that you sit down and read through. Oh, you can. But by the time you finish, your mind is so boggled from the, going so many different directions that it's hard to bring reason to it. And so the way to read Proverbs is a proverb, or even just a section of a proverb at a time. And I've been doing that for the last couple months, just reading a proverb. The last thing every day, the last thing I read is a proverb, just one. And I try to think it through for a, a few moments. And what I've seen is the contrast between God's wisdom and the, some of the foolishness that is uh, espoused as wisdom on this earth. The name Joseph Fletcher, familiar to some of you, a number of years ago, Joseph Fletcher wrote a book and became known for his proposition, which was called Situation Ethics. You know that term. And situation ethics became really kind of a norm for how we establish rights and wrongs, and it, it is today. Fletcher was an Episcopal priest, and he decided, uh, obviously without the wisdom of Proverbs, he decided that so long as love was served, everything else was okay. Now that sounds okay by itself, doesn't it? Love should always be served. 
But he had to rely on his own intellect to determine how love acted. And that's where we get in trouble. Let me give you a couple quotes from Joseph Fletcher. He said this, Only one thing is intrinsically good, namely love. Nothing else at all. What about truth and holiness? Fletcher also said, Only the end justifies the means and nothing else. Page 120 of his book. Do you hear that? Only the ends justifies the means and nothing else. And he said, love's decisions are made situationally, not prescriptively. In other words, there is no absolute right, there is no absolute wrong, there's no absolute standard for actions or beliefs. Uh, There is no such thing as truth. And so Fletcher should have read things like this. Proverbs 3, let me just read a verse or two. We're going to be in Proverbs 18, but let me read a a little excerpt out of Proverbs 3. He says, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lead not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. You know, Fletcher and others like him, of course Darwin, men like John Dewey, uh, men like Karl Marx, they have impacted the Western world. In fact, someone just handed me back a book that says Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave. Some of you have read that book. And it talks about some of these men and their impact on the ages that followed them. And and Fletcher should be included in that list. The result has been catastrophic. And I use that term because I can't think of a stronger one. I wish I could think of a stronger one. The result of what these men have taught and what they've left on our culture and our society has been catastrophic. Because they did not see God as the source of truth and the source of wisdom. There was no place to anchor. We entered into a slippery slope and there's simply no place to anchor and get stopped. Someone said that there's no ought left in our society. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? You can't say anymore, you ought to do that, or you ought not to do that. And because there simply isn't any ought left. You know, as I'm reading through Proverbs, uh, I like to outline things. My mind usually works in simple outlines. And I have tried to outline Proverbs, and it's really hard to do. You can outline it topically. You can take subjects like wisdom, which it's full of. You can take subjects like finance. You can take subjects like family. You can take subjects like relationship. You can take subjects like the tongue. And there's all kinds of topics that you can take. And then you extract all of the principles from Proverbs on those subjects. And so you can outline it that way. But to go through and methodically outline it as you would most of the Bible, it's really hard to do But here's what I found as I was thinking through this, and stay with me on this for a second, is that while it's hard to outline, 
there's this constant use of contrast and comparisons. That much of Proverbs is contrasting wisdom with foolishness, and you see that theme repeated. And then there are comparisons used and repetition used, and pretty soon you begin to realize that what's being espoused here is two entirely different value systems. Two different worldviews. One worldview that's centered around the Lord and His Word, and one worldview that's centered around man and his thoughts. And so these two worldviews are constantly contrasted and compared, and then the end of those worldviews is taught. And the end of the worldview of humanism and all the things that surround it is not pleasant. And we'll see that. And so we're looking at one worldview centered on man, one worldview centered on the Lord. And remembering Proverbs 16.25, it says that there is a way that seems right to man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. So in this conflict of worldviews, we'll see even in this little text this morning, only a couple verses. Proverbs chapter 18. You want to make your way there. But while you're doing that, let me ask a question. Who wrote Proverbs? Most of them. You know? You know. Solid, right? Almost all. A couple of them are attributed to someone else, but he wrote most of them. And when you think of Solomon, there probably are some things that come to your mind. Do you remember at the beginning of his reign? And the Lord said to Solomon, Solomon, ask and tell me what I should give you. And so let me read to you Solomon's response to that. Uh, and you, you know this, you've heard it before out of Kings, First uh, Kings 3. But Solomon said, You've shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. But now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I'm as a little child. I don't even know how to come out or to go in. Now that wasn't quite true. He wasn't a little child. He knew more than he said. But he was acknowledging to the Lord his need. And he said, And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you've chosen, a great people, too marvelous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. And so the, the heart of his request was, Lord, help me to have wisdom, right? Help me to have an understanding heart so I can know the difference between good and evil. And, and it says that Solomon's words pleased the Lord. You remember why? Because he didn't ask for length of life and he didn't ask for wealth. And so... God was pleased with it, and the Lord answered his request. Now let's back up one step. We want to set the scene for the person that's writing this, and also the context of the Proverbs. If we back up one step, we come to his father David that he mentioned. Now you could remember a lot of things about David, but here is the statement from David that I love the most. And when I read this, it gets my blood pressure up. I love this statement. David was going up against Goliath. 
I wish I could have said this, Bill. He said to Goliath, this great big giant before him, uh, this task that looked insurmountable, he's going to fight. He said, you come with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Can you hear those words coming from little David as he walked up against Goliath? He just believed in God, didn't he? He believed that God was going to deliver him. And did he? Yes, he did. David and Solomon were far from perfect, as you read about them. But they knew where to go. They knew where to go for wisdom. They knew where to go for strength. And they knew where to go for the knowledge as to what they should do in their lives and how they should do it. David sang a song. Second uh, Samuel 22, he said, and I won't sing it. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I trust. He is my stronghold and my refuge. Well, you get the picture. The writer of Proverbs was a man who knew God and who pleaded with God for wisdom. God gave it to him. And his father was David. A man after God's own heart. Can you imagine for a moment the stories young Solomon must have told about his father? Can you imagine having David for your father? You know, I remember as a little kid, my dad was about five foot six, and I remember trying to tell other kids about things that my dad did. My dad liked to box, I know he boxed, and so I'd tell him about his father. But can you imagine? Solomon wasn't there, of course, but can you imagine say, hey, my dad went against Goliath? You know, the stories he could tell about his dad. Well, Solomon, quite a man. David, his father, quite a man. And so, what we're reading here comes from the life of people who knew and walked with the Lord and had proven the Lord. And so let's look at Proverbs 18. Just a couple verses. And then we're going to come back for some application. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we read his word this morning. Father, we believe that we have before us your word, and we believe it to be wisdom from on high. Lord, we also believe it to be uh, the prescription for our life here on earth. God, would you help us as we spend these few moments together in your word? Would you help us to understand your intent? And then, Lord, would you help us to know how to practice it? in our church, and in our families, in our homes, and in our own hearts and minds. And we pray this to the end, that the Lord Jesus might be lifted up. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Proverbs 18. Let me just read a couple verses here. Track with me if you would. Verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And then the contrast. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his own esteem, some translations will use the word in his own imagination at the end there. So let's just see what it says. The first, he says, the name of the Lord. 
depending on which translation you have, it's probably capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? And do you know what that is? That's Jehovah. Jehovah's an interesting name, in the name of the Lord. You know, he's not talking about some mystical chant that we say. He's talking about the person that is represented by that name. And Jehovah is his personal name. It's not a title. That's his name. Jehovah. Remember when Moses had uh, the exchange with the Lord and he's really nervous about going to the people and he said, well, who should I say sent me? And who did the Lord say? He says, I am. I am the self-existent one. And that's the God that we're talking about. The self-existent Jehovah of the Old Testament. The Jesus of the New Testament. Uh, when when uh, Christ was being questioned at one point, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to kill him because they knew what he was saying. Jesus of the New is Jehovah of the Old, is the Lord that we're talking about in Psalm 18. The name of the Lord, the only sovereign Lord, the only power that can sustain us in any circumstance, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. You know, the, the picture here, there's all kinds of imagery in the Proverbs. And the picture here is a tower that's impregnable. You can't get into it. That tower will stand against any enemy, against any onslaught. And the name of the Lord, the person of the Lord, our Jehovah, will stand. And so the, the proverb starts with the wisdom that we have a strong tower. And then he says, the righteous run to it. I, I like that imagery too. Can you see the people seeing the enemy coming and behind them? And so what do they do? They run to the tower to get inside the tower because they know they're safe there. And so we see whatever difficulty coming and we run to the tower, the Lord Jesus, because we know we're safe there. It's our safe place. And then there's that contrast. The contrast says, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. So what's he run to? What's he run to? He runs to his bank account. Now, I don't think wealth is the only thing we could put in there. We could put in there anything that man esteems highly. Usain Bolt right now would probably say, my strength is my strong tower. He did an amazing job, didn't he? He'd probably say, I'm... Uh, Secure in and of myself. He pretty much said that in the interviews. Uh, Olympic athlete for any that didn't pay attention. But the, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. It's like a high wall in his own esteem, in his own imagination. And that's just what it is. It's in his own imagination. Because it will not stand. The Lord alone is the strong tower, the safe place. So that contrast we see between the two, the strong city that will stand and that which will not. Richard Dawkins was a brilliant mind. I'm quoting these because I think it's important for us to see where we live today, where our kids are being trained today, and the influences on our life today. And so I, these are just people. But they're well-known people, and they're people who are esteemed highly in our culture. Richard Dawkins is thought to be one of the great intellects of our age. And he's a brilliant man. He's an atheist, 
which makes him a fool. But in human understanding, he's a brilliant man. And uh, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. And he saw his intellect as his strong place. And when you read it, and I've only read bits and pieces, I'm not going to waste my time studying the whole book. But what you see is a man who saw himself, he esteemed himself in his own imagination uh, to be his safe place. The outcome, before we leave this, we're going to come back for some application, but the outcome, look at verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And that means self-sufficient. So what comes to the latter person we talked about? What comes? Destruction. And before honor is what? Humility. When we humble ourselves before the Lord and recognize Him as our strong tower and see Him as the source of our strength and our wisdom, then we can expect honor. And when we put anything else in His place, we can expect destruction. Before destruction, the heart of the haughty. Some applications. And here's where we'll try to connect some dots. And bear with me on some of these quotes. Just listen to them. I'm not asking you to remember them. I think it's good for us to understand, though, the worldviews that are being contrasted here. Because it affects our families, it affects our children, it affects our schools, our public schools. The people we're talking about are the people who are teaching our teachers. How many teachers do I have here? Got a couple of retired teachers. How many others? Got a few. Well, the people who taught you in the colleges were being taught by people like this. And these people also taught uh, the second generation teachers, the ones that were teaching these teachers. So, listen to this. They believe, of course, that life is a natural process. There's no need to resort to a creator. That's what Christopher Hitchens said. No need to resort to a creator. He speaks of the moral superiority of atheism. The moral superiority of atheism. That he believes that atheism is superior to a faith in, a, in the living God. Now listen, these are the things that are being taught today. Uh, don't dismiss me because I know it to be true. I know that at our colleges, our universities, at the highest level, these are the things that are being taught. Uh, another college professor said this. Modern science teaches us that there are no inherent moral or ethical laws. And when we die, we die. Where does a statement like that come from? It comes out of the pits of hell. That's where it comes from. Because it distracts men from that which is important. Uh, modern science teaches us that there are no inherent moral or ethical laws. That's a lie. There are inherent, prescriptive, moral, and ethical laws, and they come from the Lord. They come from His Word. They come from the wisdom that Solomon sought. And so, church, we have to stand in the gap. We've got to recognize it. And, you know, what we realize is that increasingly, in 45 minutes a week, we can't possibly prepare our children for what they're getting 40 hours or 30 hours a week in the classroom. We can't do it. Something has to change. And we've got to take up the banner. They've thrown down the gauntlet. 
They've declared the battle, and it's time for us to respond. And mom and dad, it's your responsibility. God has entrusted you. Grandparents, Phil, your grandkids, God has entrusted you. I was sitting watching with my uh, nine-year-old grandson last night. Before the Olympics, they had a little special on, on World War II. Any of you see that? It was really quite well done. They were, they were talking about what happened in London uh, during the early days, 1940, of World War II. And as we're watching this, uh, Eli, is, he's listening and he keeps asking me questions. And at the end of it, I just shut the volume off. And I, and I remember saying to him, and, it, and the Lord impressed upon me, here's a nine-year-old, I don't know what his life holds. But I, I tried to say something like this. Eli, I pray, and I do. I pray that our children never face war. Don't you? That was awful. You see what happened to London in 1940 and 41? It was awful. It was terrible. The, the people lost and the children lost. And it was a terrible time. And so I pray that Eli and his siblings never have to face a war. I hope they never have to fight. But if they do, I pray even more that they know where to go as their safe place. That they know where to go for security. Because the Lord is their strong tower. Now, how does that apply to us? You know, there have been a lot of studies done. What's happened in, in recent years is that people have watched the church one of the early mega churches, one of the most powerful churches in the U.S. today in the Chicago area, did a study. And what they found is that they were having very little impact on the people who attended their church. It just wasn't working for them. I have that study if you want to read it sometime. And so they went back and tried to reinvent themselves and tried to get people to engage in the Word of God personally. And, and to see God as the source of their strength personally and not just in a corporate sense. Um, listen, listen to this. This is what they recognize they're battling against. Richard Dawkins said, Faith is one of the world's greatest evils. Steven Weinberg said, If scientists can destroy the influence of religion on young people, I think it's the most important contribution we can make. Have they thrown down... The gun. Have they said, we've declared war? Have they? They said, the most important contribution we can make is to destroy faith in the lives of our young people. Does that break your heart? Another study said that the majority of young adults, about 61%, young adults being defined as between the ages of 20 and 29, about 61% had been churched at one time in their life. But they are now, at when they reach that age of 20 to 29, spiritually disengaged, and they define spiritually disengaged as not attending church, not praying, and not reading the Bible. That's spiritually disengaged. That was a study by George Barna. Now listen to this. Of that 61%, 40% had their first doubts in middle school. 44% had their first doubts in high school, 11% only in college. Early on, 
this bombardment that they're getting outside of the home and outside of the church is affecting their faith, affecting their belief system. And so they are departing way earlier than we saw before. This is kind of a revolutionary study because we thought that it was happening later. But we're finding out, no, it's happening much earlier. It's happening back in middle school. Then they asked these kids, well, why did you leave church? What do churches change most to attract young people today? Somebody tell me. What'd you say? Music. Music, absolutely. Jim, do you know what percentage of these young people cited music as the reason they left the church? You don't know, right? One percent said music. And so we spin our wheels trying to create music that attracts young people, and 1% of them say that's the reason they left the church. Uh, a couple other statistics. Boring service, well, 12% said boring service. Hmm, maybe like this morning, huh? Uh, 12% said legalism. Those are pretty significant, but what you see when you look at that whole study is that there was no one category that jumped out at you. There was no one reason, no specific reason why they were leaving. They just don't see how it fits into their lives because it's not part of their core values, not part of their worldview. Well, there was another study by a guy named David Kinnaman, and I think David Kinnaman nailed it, absolutely nailed it. He wrote a book out of this called Unchristian. Now listen to this. If anything ought to break our hearts, it's what I'm going to read you right now. Only 15% of the young people see any difference in the lifestyles of Christians. Only 15% of the kids see any difference in the lifestyles of people who name the name of Christ. Does that cut you to the heart? makes me ask myself, uh, did I talk to my kids more about God or about grammar? I used to talk to them about grammar all the time. That's back when I remembered something about grammar. But I used to ask them questions about grammar. I used to ask them what a gerund was. Anybody know what a gerund is? And I'd ask them all kinds of questions about grammar. Well, did I talk to them more about the Lord or did I talk to them more about grammar? Did I talk to them more about scripture or did I talk to them more about science? You know, I wanted them to understand grammar, and I wanted them to understand science. But what they really need to understand is the Lord Jehovah. That's what they need to understand. They need to understand who God is. They need to understand that God is their strong tower. Is that right? Is that right? Because no matter what comes in their life, prosperity or not, the Lord is the tower, the refuge. The one who could stand. The proverb says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The rich man, his wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own imagination. But before destruction, the heart of the man is lifted up, is self sufficient, is haughty, and before honor is humility. And so we humble ourselves before the Lord. And I would say this to the Lord today for all of us. God help us to humbly come before you in repentance. Repentance for not 
naming your name more often to our children and to those around us. And we ask for wisdom. And we ask the Lord for wisdom, knowing he's the source of wisdom. God, what do we say and how do we say it? You are the source of wisdom. And Lord, most of all, may they see us running to the strong tower, the name of Jehovah, as our place of refuge. If they watch our lives and observe the way we conduct ourselves, God help them to see us coming to you as the source of the strength for our life. Because they'll see. They'll see. Just like 15% only said they saw any difference in Christian lifestyle. I would pray that for us here this morning that they see it in 100% of all of us. Bill's going to come and close. Forgive me for the statistics. I thought maybe it would help us to see something of the problem a little more clearly. Let's go ahead and have the musicians come. We're going to go ahead and close. Bill apologized for the statistics. I asked him to give the statistics. I wanted us to think about the fact that what we're doing is not working and we're losing our children. And whether the world cares about our children or not, we care. We don't want to lose 85% of our children. We don't want 85% of our children thinking more of the world than of the things of God. This is important stuff. And so it may seem like a minor thing what we're doing here over the next few weeks as we talk about this and some of the changes we're putting in. But you need to understand how vitally important this is. And we as parents and grandparents and, and just brothers and sisters in Christ in this church who are being looked at by these kids. We are the ones who they're saying. They see no difference. God forgive us for that. That's horrendous. And so as we go right now to our time of invitation, we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. And over the next few weeks, I want us to be asking ourselves some hard questions. What do our kids see? What do they see when they look at us? What do the kids in this church, who maybe they're not part of our family, but nonetheless they're our brothers and sisters, or we want them to be. Maybe they haven't trusted Christ yet, they're not yet our brothers and sisters, but we want them to be. What do they see when they see us? Some of us need to do business with God. And some of us need to decide whether or not we care that the church of Jesus Christ is losing such a ridiculous number of our young people.